This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, I'm Hanif Baharuddin and you're tuned in to the show that brings you closer to the people and places of our capital city. My Parang is a boutique parang maker that's been in the game for close to a decade and it's not only well known among local parang enthusiasts but abroad as well. They have a very unique approach to producing their parangs that's favoured by both local and international enthusiasts. The founder, Ahmad Nadir Askandar, was not an enthusiast himself but his accidental entry into the market has equipped him with all the right knowledge about this very niche scene. He joins us to share his story and experience. Um, okay, I'm uh, Ahmad Nadir from the uh, company Outdoor Dynamics in Emberhat who owns the brand uh, My Parang and uh, we are based in Penang. Mm. So can you tell me a bit about My Parang? What, what is it exactly? It's actually a brand of parang, locally made parangs that we assemble and um, we actually sell it throughout the world. Okay, and what, what initiated this whole journey of being a craftsman or like a parang maker for you it just came as a i would say a opportunity because uh, way back in 2007 i had an online shop among the things that i sold was uh, camping equipment and parang was one of them so it happened that uh, we had a lot of inquiries from overseas we we used to sell this uh, normal parangs that you get in you know just a local shops I would ask my customers like how are they performing, how are they doing, and uh, the most uh, common um, feedback I would get was that the handle was not very comfortable because uh, they're made of plastic and uh, very slippery. So that's where I started thinking about uh, assembling uh, wooden handled parangs. We started uh, making the parangs in 2013, and now. Uh, 2021 and alhamdulillah the sales has been increasing every year apart from apart from the handle what else makes our parangs appealing to not only local customers but also international customers out there that's a good question actually because uh, a lot of tools or big knives like machetes and all that nowadays are quite modern first of all they're made in a factory whereas the ones that my parang made are fully handmade Okay, of course, they're made with uh, power tools and machinery, but there's still a human behind there controlling. A lot of the modern tools nowadays, they have this full tank construction where the blade actually extends right into the handle. Whereas the Southeast Asian uh, machetes or parangs, we have a stick tank. And this actually makes it very light, reasonably light, but at the same time, it gets a lot of chopping power. And also the blades are actually uh, heat-treated differentially that means only the edge is hardened whereas the back of the parang is still soft and this uh, produces a sharp edge at the same time reduces the chances of the parang breaking mm. i understand that um you also source your blades uh, from a blacksmith factory in bido right perhaps maybe you can share with us your relationship with uh, uncle chin chin pinyo and, and how did that start how i started selling the parang is quite a interesting story as well because uh, way back then in 2010-2008, uh, there was this Malaysian knife forum and uh, I would go in and just share things about knives and parangs and all that. One of the yearly events was a camp and cut, okay, which was held in Sungkai. So I attended that and uh, there I was given the task to look for ice, you know, for drinking ice cubes. 
So I went to the local, uh, the nearest town, which was a Bido, and I asked around. Uh, they said there's a ice factory at the back. So I drove in into the industrial area and I noticed this uh, signboard of a paramaker. So short detour, I went to visit him and uh, I was quite interested in what he was making. I thought, oh, it'd be good to add to my shop. Few months after that, I made a trip down and I bought my first batch of parangs that I sold in my online shop. From there, initially I didn't know he was that well known, but later on I learned that oh, this is the legendary Bido, uh, the cross sword uh, brand. We did quite good sales locally as well as uh, internationally. Actually, the reason why we had a lot of uh, international uh, buyers was because our website was in English. I suppose these parangs were well known already, but there was no one actually selling it overseas. So here comes a website in English and yeah, I think people just started buying. And uh, once the word got out, you know, in knife forums, bushcraft forums and all that, then more and more uh, people started to come and buy from us. Um, going back to that, for us, I guess locals, Parang can be seen as like a very practical appliance for us to use, right? I mean, for its intended purposes. But for, I guess, the international audience, I know you've said that uh, you've given reasons why I guess there is an appeal to why they prefer our parangs. But what do they use it for? Like, do they use it for like, you know, household activities or do they use it more for campings? Parangs, actually, yeah, they're quite well known overseas thanks to some... Um bushcraft uh, experts and as well as um, military, you know, during the British times. They would come and use these parangs and they would write books about it and share stories about it, but uh, no one could get them. Mostly our customers, they are into this bushcraft, camping, outdoor and survival line. Actually, one of the top bushcraft experts, uh, Ray Mears, he actually used one in one of his uh, episodes in Phenomenal in Sabah. And everywhere you see people asking where you get this Ramias Parang. It, it wasn't designed by him, but when he came to Malaysia, he bought a local uh, made Parang and he used that throughout the show. And yeah, that garnered the interest as well. Mostly, yeah, I would say people who do camping. Even I've seen uh, people use them to clean uh, deers, uh, cut fish. So it's quite a versatile tool and of course can be used for gardening as well. Mm, yeah, if you don't mind me uh, going back to the conversation uh, regarding your relationship with your Uncle Chin, how has that relationship uh, evolved uh, since you started collaborating with him? I suppose he's had a lot more working customers. I understand a lot of foreigners. We had one Australian from the Bushcraft channel on YouTube who went over to take a video of his whole uh, factory. I know he's got received a few calls from Italy and United States asking him to make knives for them. But they're all very simple people and they just enjoy what they're doing. But I suppose I've put him as well into the uh, international market as well. Now the whole world knows about him. Mm, okay, that's great. I can consider your parang as um, slightly artisanal, right? So so what's what's the appeal behind having an artisanal parang uh, for people who who enjoy this kind of parang? Like, is it more for collection or is it more for, I guess, having a high quality tool that you can use and rely on? As for the look, some, I guess some people will call it uh, semi-finished, some people will call it uh, rustic. But uh, we do keep the original forging marks on the blade, which is um, a bit 
uh, different to the Malaysian taste. Okay, a lot of the Malaysian blades, they normally they grind out all these marks and you're left with a shiny piece of steel. Okay, but um, as my initial um, intentions were to export this parang, so I looked at design or a look that would appeal to the international market. Of course, with all these factory-made tools, you don't have anything, not say anything, but a lot of these knives don't have soul, you know. They don't have this human touch or made-by-hand look. So that's why we decided to keep the forging marks. And uh, of course, if you look at it, each piece is different. None of them are exactly the same. I think that completes the look to make it look uh, handmade, and it is, and also to give it uh, appeal to the customers. And uh, of course, they are made to be used. Of course, we have customers who prefer to frame them up or keep them, but that's fine. We have a lifetime warranty as well on them. So if there's any problem, they can uh, exchange it for a new one. Uh, yeah, speaking of your design, um, I'm not very yeah, knowledgeable when it comes to parang, but I understand that based on the process that I've seen on YouTube or the explanation by a lot of YouTubers regarding your, your parang is that I think the bottom part is kept hard and sharp but the top part of the parang or the spine of the parang is kept soft right and as a result because you don't dip it in water i don't know what's the process called is it, is it called sepu or something right yes right it's the the i guess the markings there will re, will remain right and and, and as, as such it's not as smooth as the bottom part of the parang right uh yes actually the support or the process of heat treating the blade is different to what the western or what the factories can do which is where what the factories do is they heat up the whole blade until it's all uh, red hot and they dip the whole thing into a quench of water or oil okay, to harden it. And uh, this produces a blade that is hard at the cutting edge as well as the spine. Okay, It throughout is hard. Whereas a parang is only heated at the edge where it cuts and uh, only the edge is put into water or oil to harden it. So you have a sharp, hard edge, but a soft spine. That's why if you use your parang to baton, you hit the back with a hammer or anything, the, the back of the parang of mushroom because it's soft. And uh, yeah, this is one of the differences. And uh, of course, the forge marks, the one that you see at the top part of the parang, that's the original marks that comes uh, out of the forge. Oh, the forge marks are not really similar to like other parangs. Different parangs have different forge marks, right? Yes, exactly. They're all individual. You never get to the same because it's it's a natural process. It's not man-made. There have been uh, knives that I've seen or parangs that I've seen that uh, they artificially stamp on these forging marks and you have one look and you know it's fake already. So nothing beats the real one. Mm, okay, all right. You mentioned earlier that the I think the handles of the parangs are also pretty important. I think a lot of people they don't prefer uh, handles that are made from plastic. And I think for for my parangs, parangs are they are sourced from the handles are made from wood, right? I understand that the handles are sourced from Croatia. What kind of wood is it, and why did you choose that type of wood? Yeah, the wood is quite interesting on the handle itself. Yeah, the the chief uh, feedback that I got from my customers was that when they hold the plastic handle, they said they were holding like a candle, you know. So they said it's uncomfortable. Can you make a wooden one? So we I tried looking for for local makers who could make um, uh, these handles, but a lot of the parameters they could only make uh, small quantities, and they all 
uh, different individual. What I needed was someone who could do large quantities, you know, like thousand or five hundred pieces. And finally, that was the the most difficult part. We finally found a supplier in Johor who was uh, already making uh, machete handles. I went down to see him, and he agreed to make them. And initially, when I met him, I I wanted to use local wood, you know, because we've got a lot of uh, beautiful um, and artistic wood. But on the contrary, he actually told me that, you know, local wood is a bit difficult. I said, why? You know, why not? I prefer to use it over imported wood. Uh, he said one of the reasons is that the local wood is not kiln dry. That means uh, the moisture content is quite high. If you're using it in Malaysia, it should be no problem. But once you go overseas where the air is colder and the air is drier, you may have problems with the shrinking of the handle. So that's one one of his points. And then the second one was that our local wood is all cut from the forest. There's no consistency. Even if you take the same species, let's say you take Arambunga, okay, you have uh, different age trees where the grain is different and even different part of the trees has got different coloration and uh, grains. So in terms of consistency, it was also a problem. And even though same species, sometimes you can get a denser piece of wood and a lighter piece of wood because of the age of the trees is different. Whereas this uh, wood, uh, beech wood that I'm actually using in my parang is farm wood. They call it echo wood. That means it's been planted. So every time they cut the wood, it's all the same age. The color is the same. The density is the same. The grain width, the pattern is all the same. And uh, it makes it a lot much uh, easier. And also there's a consistent uh, supply of them compared to local wood. You know, if you want to make a thousand handles, you may need uh, 500 kilos of wood. Where can you get 500 kilos of arambunga or, uh, you know, juha or something like that? It's um, the supply is inconsistent. I think those those three points are why I decided on uh, beach wood, and also because uh, another point that he fact I pointed out was that the fibers were interlocking; they're not so easy to break. Because uh, I asked him, why don't we use uh, cengal? You know, cengal is easy to get. It's hard. You can get tons of it, no problem. He said, well, sometimes the hard wood is not the best because uh, it may be brittle. It might uh, chip easily. So he suggested using beech wood, which was what he was using. And he said, you know, throughout the world, he's been doing it for past 10 years. Absolutely no problem. And uh, up to now, to date, It's already, I think, uh, seven years since we started using beech wood. Alhamdulillah, not a single uh, case of uh, broken handle yet. I've been speaking to Ahmad Nadir Askandar, founder of My Parang, a local artisanal parang maker with an international presence about the parang scene here in the country. We're going for a short break. Stay tuned. I'm Hanif Baharudin and you're listening to I Love KL on BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're listening to I Love KL, bringing you closer to the people and places of our capital city. I'm Hanif Baharudin. Joining me on the show today is Ahmad Nadir Askandar. He's the founder of My Parang, an artisanal parang maker here in the country that's been serving parang enthusiasts local and abroad. We've been hearing about how he got into the business and how he's approached his craft. So let's continue that conversation. 
you source your blades from Bido, you source your handles from Joho. Um, I mean, at least it's made in Joho. Did you assemble them yourself, or or is it mostly like outsourced to different different companies as well? Yeah, so this is a good another good question. Okay, when people hear my parang, they want to come visit our factory, and then they come and there's no forge, there's no anvil, <laughs> so it's a bit of a disappointment to them. Yes, we don't make anything ourselves. We only assemble them. Okay, like the blades, we get them from Bido. And also, we're looking at other makers as well who can uh, supply us. And also, the handles we have them made somewhere else in Johor. Like the copper rings, we do it ourselves and we assemble them. But basically, what we're doing is uh, assembling. Okay, we assemble, we clean up the blades. Okay, there's actually a lot of work, uh, very quite labor intensive also because the blades come in black and some are crooked. Some are every batch sometimes has got different. Um, Shapes, you know, general shapes. So we have to do a lot of fine tuning in the workshop itself, and uh, the handles need to be coloured. We assemble them, we repackage them, we put our brand on them. I think uh, you seen, you know that on the blades that we still retain the uh, Bido makers uh, stamp. Okay, initially when when we started making them, they they asked me like, you want to put your own chop or you want to put our own brand. I said no. You put your own brand because I want you to have ownership. I want you to have responsibility over your own products. You know, I don't want to take hundred percent of the credit. So by doing that, I think it gives these makers uh, some ownership or sense of pride as well to retain their name. As for the sheath, uh, yeah, we use a nylon sheath, and unfortunately, those are not made in uh, Malaysia. We had to source them from China because uh, I did try to look for a local maker, but he did the same thing. So I thought <laughs> no point going to them. Might as well go direct. Mm, okay. So how long does it take to assemble a parang usually? Uh, if you do one by one, it probably would take uh, from from start to finish maybe a day and a half. That's uh, most of the time is waiting for the epoxy to harden. But uh, if you don't wait for the epoxy, I think uh, within I'll say three to four hours you could get one ready. In uh, in a month we can uh, assemble up to I think about four hundred parangs. Okay, so there are many different designs of parangs out there, right? So how do one choose the right one for the right usage? Bit about this design is that uh, we try to keep our designs uh, traditional. I think uh, Malaysia and Southeast Asia has uh, a huge uh, mine of beautiful designs that I think is some some of them are actually disappearing. People are not using them anymore. So I'm constantly doing research and looking for new designs to make into uh, new parangs. Yeah, actually there there are a few distinct type of categories like the Golok style. Okay, golok and parang. Okay, golok and parang is used uh, interchangeably. Yeah, it's quite uh, interesting reason why. But we have many different designs, and uh, actually, to me, what is most important would be the uh, the weight of the parang. Okay, we have uh, the smallest one we have is eight inches, and the biggest one we have, I think, is about thirteen thirteen inches. Sometimes we have a long parang, but it's actually light, so. It actually depends on your what you want to use. If you want to do a lot of heavy chopping, you know, like cutting big trees, clearing land, and all that, you may want to go for a heavier parang, like the Golok one one three five or the 
candung heavy. But if you're doing a smaller task, you know, like uh, you want to open coconuts, you want to cut firewood at home, you can go for the 8-inch parang or the 10-inch parang. But generally, a good size for camping, outdoor, bushcraft, survival would be a 10 to 12-inch parang. Not too heavy, not too light. Um, and earlier you said that there's a difference between golok and parang, right? What's the difference? I ask a lot of people actually, what's the difference between a golok and a parang? Because some sometimes I will ask this guy, say, oh, this golok. And then I ask another person, oh, this is a parang. I couldn't find a official definition of what a parang is, what a golok is. So I asked a few people around and some say it's because of the length. If certain length you call it a parang, certain length you call it golok. But when you go down into detail, like what's the actual length? How many inches? Then there's nothing. It's blank. <laughs> it's just short, long, like that. But what I notice a, a, a general theme or what a lot of people um, refer to is that on the east coast, Kelantan, Terengganu, they refer to it as the golok. Okay, on the west coast, people call it as the parang. So it's basically the same. You know, like in Borneo, Sabah, Sarawak, they call it duku. Which all duku, golok, parang, they're all about the same. Compared to machete. Okay, machete is quite a different tool. It's uh, normally very thin and long and it can bend. So a lot of uh, foreigners, they say uh, they call it parang machete. It's actually wrong. Parang is a parang, machete is a machete. It's quite a different thing. I thought uh, machete is the translation, English translation for parang, but technically they're different, right? Yeah, the machete come from uh, Latin America. They use that in Brazil and, you know, you, you see all these uh, adventure movies, they have this uh, slashing. The good thing, the nice thing about the machete is that it's thin and long. That when you chop something, it makes a very interesting sound. But at least in Malaysia, the terms are parang, golo, and duku too. They're just, um, I guess, different names are for the same thing lah. Yes, and then of course, parangs and golok, they have their own designs. Sometimes, you know, you have golok perak, you have uh, duku candung or parang candung, and then you have tangkin, um, you got uh, buaya berenang, golok perak, uh, golok daun buluh, you got golok kedah. There are many different shapes, but sometimes the shapes can get quite confusing. They They may not or into any category. Mm. Are there any shapes that are considered mainstream? Uh, mainstream, I suppose, uh, the models that we make, the Golok, that's quite mainstream. You can find them everywhere. There, there are a few types that sometimes is quite location-specific. You know, if if you are in Cameron Highlands, uh, there's a lot of orang asli, you get a different type of parang there, mostly so. Whereas you go to the East Coast, you got a lot of different types there. You go to Sabah, Sarawak, it's a different design altogether. But uh, yeah, depends on the place and also sometimes uh, on what they use for. You know, like sometimes you've got a pineapple plantation nearby, then the, the shape of it is suitable for harvesting uh, pineapples. And what about what about the steel used for the blade? Uh, because I think, you know, I've seen some reviews online where they say that, oh, this is from... And they, they mentioned some numbers, like this is like what, 5156 steel or something like that. So what does that mean? Like, Do you have like a different types of steel that you use for your parangs? Yes, uh, actually steel is, uh, I think, thousands or at least hundreds of thousands of different types. You know, uh, stainless steel, high carbon steel, you got mild steel. The steel that's used to make parangs normally is uh, 
uh, high carbon steel okay is uh, the ones that is used for my parang is called uh, 5160 5160 or SUP9A this is the same grade but it depends on using the American standard or the GIS that's the technical word okay the technical grade but a lot of people refer it to lease springs okay the ones that are under trucks and under lorries those are flat uh, suspension steel that's uh, the lease springs and the makers a lot of these para makers actually use recycled steel okay from the lease springs and cut it up and heat it up and shape it into parangs but uh, for our bido maker here he actually uses a uh, new steel uh, bought from the steel suppliers that hasn't been turned into lease springs yet so they come in flat bar and uh, actually it's easier for them to control the the size of the product okay because they're quite a big manufacturing as well it's easier for them to control the end product when the when the raw material is of the same size Mm, all right. Okay. So the community of Parang enthusiasts here seems to be growing, right? But how big is the scene here based on your observation? As for makers or the enthusiasts? Both? Both. Uh, okay. As for the makers, I, it's always been a culture. You know, for Parang, you if you want a good one, you have to have it uh, custom made. And uh, I think there are at least uh, 500 makers throughout Malaysia including uh, Sabah Sarawak Peninsula and uh, it's, it's actually a thriving industry and uh, a lot of people think that uh, you know this crafting is backyard is how can it survive but actually these uh, makers have some of them who have established a name okay they can make quite quite good money as for the users uh, there are always uh, new people coming into the bushcraft camping i think the last uh, two three years has been a huge uh, explosion in uh, camping in in malaysia and uh, a lot of people are enjoying more of the outdoors i think uh, the workload and all this COVID thing has been panting up this uh, anger to go outdoors more that has actually helped out with the sales and I think generally there's more interest in going outdoors nowadays. Hmm. As a parang maker, have you ever been worried about the risk that I think some might perceive your products differently? Like I think um, there is this perception that maybe parang is mostly associated with, I guess, uh, negative things, right? <laughs> uh, violence and crime and, and can yes. be quite dangerous as well, right? So um, have you ever been worried about those things, those perceptions? And yeah, and if like they might be used differently, not for its intended purposes? Of course, it's an ongoing uh, uphill task, I would say, because uh, every time you say parang, they're like, ooh, you make weapons, eh? Some people are actually afraid of it. Some think it as a, as a weapon to injure people. But I know all uh, my parang customers don't do that because uh, they're all responsible outdoor bushcraft people. We've been having uh, some problems as well exporting because uh, it's uh, frowned upon actually, these parangs. And I have to say that parangs are not a weapon. Okay, They can be used as a weapon, but if you look at a weapon, uh, it is designed to cause harm or to injure or to kill. Okay, let's say you take a karambit, the, the hook, or they call it a lawi ayam, a hook, a knife that you use in silat or self-defense. And a karambit is designed to severe your arteries and uh, hook pieces of your flesh out. 
and you can't actually use it for anything else, you know. You can't peel a mango with a crumbit. You can't open a coconut with a crumbit. And its sole intention, its sole design is to cause injury or harm. And that is a weapon. But coming to a parang, it, it started as an everyday tool. Of course, it's sharp, you know, just like any kitchen knife. But why don't people look at kitchen knives as a weapon? If you go to a shop, okay, there's a, there's a fight. What normally they use is uh, the stool, okay, or the helmet. And you can't categorize the helmet as a stool, as a weapon. So although the parang is a knife, it is a, a agriculture tool, but at the same time, it can be a weapon. Just like a screwdriver, a car can be used as a weapon. A lot of people are afraid, okay. When, when I had my shop, I used to sell parangs in the shop and people would come in and then see the parangs, you just take two steps away, you know. But uh, it's actually no, not not an offense to sell it. I've asked before. I think this uh, a lot of people need to change this uh, perception. It's our culture to have a parang. Of course, you don't go walking into a shopping mall with a parang strapped to your waist. I've asked a few people as well in the law enforcement. They said it's actually a grey area. There's no right or wrong. It depends on the situation and where you are, what you're doing with it. That's it. Are people allowed to carry parang? I said, sure. If you are in the jungle, just carry it like normal. But if you're going into town, you're taking a bus, you're taking public transport, you're going to a mall, you don't, you don't show it. You put it in your bag. It's fine to carry around. Yeah, if you go to Sabah, Sarawak, the deeper villages, you know, everyone carries a parang on their waist. It's like us carrying a handphone. If you are entering somebody's house, it's customary to take it out and leave it at the door. Okay, because if you bring it in, it's like a form of uh, aggression. But yeah, it, people need to change and look at it as an everyday tool and not as a weapon or something that can be used. But those, I believe, those who can afford my parang are responsible people. Mm, all right. So um, do you have any advice for people who are planning to get into this craft, whether from the perspective of a maker or I don't know whether it's accessible. Maybe you can perhaps shed some light on that. Or even for enthusiasts who also like a budding enthusiast, right? Who would like to, I guess, start either collecting or start, you know, buying a high quality parang, right? Should they immediately jump to, you know, getting like a high quality parang straight away? Or should they like perhaps you know, start with something, I guess, like a, of a lower quality first? Yeah, what's, what's the approach like usually? Well, my advice would be if you want to collect or you want to use them, start, start slowly, do research. Uh, every year, this craft tangan has this Hari Craft Kebangsaan in Jalan Conley. And that's a good place to start and look around. Okay, Malaysia has got a very diverse parang industry. You have the traditional makers, you have the modern makers. Okay, and they, they cater for a whole uh, big wide audience. If you just jump into it, it can be overwhelming. I suggest that you just start with what you like. Have a look first. Don't jump straight into it because I think if you if you go into it too fast, you will fizzle out. So take your time. Go to these craft fairs. Have a look. Buy what you like. Okay, see what, what you intend to use it for, for collection or for personal use. Yeah, it's, it's quite a big area actually. You you have to know what, what you want. And knowing what you want, you need to know what you want to use it for and what uh, certain styles that you like. Mm. Uh, do you have any tips for people who 
I guess happen to have parangs at home, but they might not necessarily be enthusiasts or might not be that knowledgeable when it comes to using a parang. Any tips for them to perhaps keep and maintain their parangs well? Like should should they oil it, you know, once in a while, or should they, uh, you know, sharpen it, you know, every every few years or right? How? Yeah. Uh, well, of course, because a parang is made of carbon steel, that means it it rusts very easily, especially in our weather. And uh, of course, every time after you use, uh, it depends on how often you use it. If you use it often, a good wipe down, dry the blade, and if you want a bit of oil, will keep it uh, protected and uh, prevent rust. If you really prefer, if you use it a bit and you prefer to keep the parang in its uh, original state, then you have to do a bit more cleaning. Okay, maybe a bit of sandpaper and uh, oil it and keep it back in the sheath. It varies as well. Some people prefer to have a dirty looking parang, but to make sure that the edge is sharp. Okay, that's one of the important things. You must have the edge sharp. A blunt tool is uh, more dangerous than a sharp tool. So... Uh, how often do you sharpen it? It depends on your use. Uh, if you use it occasionally, then uh, you sharpen uh, not so often. But if you use it more uh, often and the uh, items that you cut is harder, then you will dull the blade uh, faster. So you need to sharpen it more often. But uh, there's no set way. It depends on how you use it and what your preference is. And uh, some people, they... When they use the parang, they prefer not to have it uh, perfectly clean. They like to leave the tree sap and uh, dirt um, on the surface of the parang. This uh, produces a, a patina. It's like a dark brown or almost black coating on the blade. And this actually protects the parang from uh, rusting. Okay, And this one, you shouldn't, for those who prefer this kind of uh, coating, they shouldn't be sanded off should be just left on the parang and just oil and sharpen. Sharpening is the most important. And I, I do get a lot of questions as well. How do you sharpen a parang? Uh, it's, uh, it's impossible for me to explain. You can get a bit of knowledge uh, from watching YouTube videos and all that, but uh, nothing beats uh, getting a sharpening stone and actually doing it yourself. I, I learned when I was maybe 10 or 12 years old. That time there was no YouTube. You just try and error. Of course, I spoiled a lot of knives and uh, wasted a lot of stones. But today, yeah, I can sharpen a knife. <laughs> All right. Okay. So what's next for my parang? I mean, you've been in the industry for quite a while now. You've had international success. Uh, so what's next for my parang? Like, are you planning to perhaps introduce different designs of your parang? So I guess try and penetrate a lot more markets uh, internationally and even locally as well. Yeah. What's next for you? Definitely, uh, we are coming up with new designs. How we, we do it is that uh, we introduce new designs, new models, and we test the market out for two years. After two years, uh, we check again and see the, the parangs with the least um, sales. We have to remove them from the list and we introduce uh, new models. We want to keep our models uh, constantly fresh and um, new. We don't want to have the same models, you know, after 10 years, it's still the same thing. We like to keep it fresh and of course, there's no um, end to the to the designs of the parangs that we have. Okay, and uh, also we are looking at including other items uh, other than parangs like sharpening stones and survival kits and additional items that can complement your parang. We are always uh, looking to reach more customers because of the nature of our business. We find it, well, it's not difficult, but we can't actually advertise on Facebook and Instagram. So we have to rely on 
word of mouth, forums and uh, magazine articles to get more interest in our items. Mm, all right. Yeah, for people out there who would like to uh, find out more about MyParang, where can they go to? You can uh, drop by our website, which is myparang.com. And also we have uh, social media, MyParang on Facebook, as well as MyParang on uh, Instagram. And um, those who wonder why I named it MyParang, MY is actually the acronym for Malaysia. You've been tuning in to I Love KL and I've been speaking to Ahmad Nadir Askandar, owner of My Parang, artisanal parang maker that's been around for quite a while with parangs that have penetrated the international market. That's all we have for this episode of I Love KL. If you miss any part of the show, you can check out the podcast at bfm.my slash ilovekl, our app which you can find via Google Play and the App Store and also Spotify. Don't forget to also follow the station on Twitter at BFM Radio. My name is Sanif Baharudin and you have been tuning in to I Love KL, bringing you closer to the people and places of our capital city. Remember to stay at home if possible, practice physical distancing and stay safe. Join us again next week only on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.